0: Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. They called him the Beast. David Fagenbaum was the fittest of his friends at the University of Pennsylvania's medical school. A six foot three gym addict and former quarterback at Georgetown. His mammoth hands seemed more suited to spiraling footballs than the fine finger work of a doctor in training. He had endurance to match, taking multiple hits and returning to the field to play on. Quote, This guy was a physical specimen, said his former roommate Grant Mitchell, who used to walk to work with him. When they would arrive at the hospital for his obstetrics rotation, his friend recalled he would basically coerce me into doing pull-ups on the tree outside. In July of 2010, that all changed. The 25-year-old woke up at night drenched in sweat, his lymph nodes were swollen, he felt stabs of abdominal pain, and odd red bumps began sprouting across his chest. Most bizarre of all, he felt very tired, so tired that he began slipping into empty exam rooms between patients, stealing five-minute naps to get through the day. Guys, he said, I think I'm dying. Well, today is the publication date of his miraculous book, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. There's a link in my Twitter file and a story that I've just read from, which was a cover story in 2017 in the New York Times, no less, about my next guest. This is Dr. David Hey, doctor, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Michael. You
0: know, in the afterword of the book, you close by saying, by the time the book comes out, I hope it will be more than five years since I have last been sick. Did you meet that milestone?
1: That's right. I just crossed five and a half years.
0: It's an unbelievable story, not only about you personally, but I, I learned a great deal about rare disease or rare diseases generally, including the fact that about 10% of Americans have a rare disease.
1: That's right. 30 million Americans have one of these rare diseases, one of 7,000. And unfortunately, 95% of those 7,000 diseases don't have a single FDA-proof therapy.
0: I I have a naive question. If so many have a rare disease, how can it be a rare disease? And I (laughs) anticipate that your answer will be because there are a boatload of them.
1: That's exactly right. There are so many rare diseases that together they're no longer rare, but unfortunately, on their own, because they're rare, they're often neglected, which is why we often call them orphan diseases.
0: Yours is Castleman disease. What is Castleman disease?
1: So it's a rare disease where the immune system attacks the vital organs. It's kind of like a cross between a cancer and an autoimmune disease. And unfortunately, we don't really even know how to classify it. And because of how little is known, it makes treating it extremely difficult.
0: I posted on my website, you as the beast and you in 2011, when you were really in the in the throes of, of combating this. Um, th- those photographs are stunning. I mean, to, to look at, at, at the the changes that underwent in your body, are hard to believe it's the same person.
1: You're right, and and even more shocking is that that was just the first of five times that I nearly died. I wrote this book because... I learned so much about life and living from each of the times that I nearly died, lessons that I felt like I had to share um, because I didn't know them before I became ill. And I hope other people don't have to wait until they go through those sort of experiences and, and look as sick as that picture that you
0: mentioned. If you weren't so dogged, it probably, I mean, as an advocate for yourself and obviously benefiting from the fact that you're a physician and have great knowledge, but you probably would not have sorted this out or sorted this out at least in the time period that you did.
1: That's right. Um, When I almost died for the fourth time um, back in 2012, I learned that there was no research being done and that there were no more drugs in development than the one that had just not worked for me. And I basically learned that I had no reason to be hopeful. Um, But if I wanted to be hopeful for a future, I would need to turn my hope for a future into action and I would need to start getting involved in research. I could no longer hope someone else would figure out my disease, and so I promised my dad and sisters and wife that I would dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to identify treatments and cures for this disease, and the drug I'm on, which we mentioned earlier that I'm in remission for five years, is actually a drug I I identified in my lab based on our research, a drug that had never been used before for Castleman disease, but I hoped that maybe it, it could extend my life, and um, amazingly and excitingly, it, it's it's helping me, but it's also helping many other Castleman's patients. And we've actually just started a clinical trial a couple weeks ago, and hopefully it'll help many more.
0: This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from SiriusXM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4.
1: Listen to Michael live,
0: weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. Is part of the reason that there are so many rare diseases that don't have a medication that there isn't incentive for a drug company to develop one?
1: That's exactly right. Rare diseases um, are are much more difficult to to make profit around for, for pharmaceutical companies, so there's less incentive. Something that I'm really passionate about is this concept that so the drug that I'm on was developed for kidney transplantation 25 years ago. No one had ever thought to try it for Castleman disease and has never been tried for Castleman's. But here it is today, saving my life. How many more of the 1,500 drugs that were already developed for something might actually be treatments or cures for something else that currently doesn't have any answers? And I really hope this book will help to inspire and, and highlight this important issue. You became your own lab rat. Is that fair? That's right. You know, I was the easiest subject to get samples from, and so uh, I worked in in my lab on my own samples day in and, and day out to try to identify what was going on and try to find something um, that could help to treat me. And, and though I'm doing really well on this treatment, I I do know that this disease is relentless, and that as I mentioned in, in the afterward, it could come back at any time. And so we're relentless. My research team in the Castleman disease collaborative network are working with everything we have um, to continue to push forward the science for Castleman, but also to learn about the immune system for many other diseases.
0: What's the Santa Claus theory of civilization?
1: It's this belief that someone somewhere must be working on that thing that I'm wishing for. If I'm hoping for a cure, if, if I need something uh, like a treatment, that someone somewhere, there must be a group of researchers working together like, like Santa's elves to come up with a solution. And I think that... That theory is kind of kind of comes from the fact that if you Google anything, it, it seems like there's an answer for just about everything. Um, but the reality is is that for many things, especially diseases, the th- seven thousand I mentioned earlier, there's there are often very few answers, and unfortunately, very few solutions, and so we can no longer and, and we can't just believe that someone somewhere must be working on a treatment for my disease and hope that someone w- would be. Uh, we need to turn our hopes and prayers into action. And and for me, I was a, a third-year medical student, and I s- subscribed to that theory. I, you know, someone must be figuring out this disease, and it took literally learning from the world's experts that there were no more options to realize that I needed to turn my hope into action.
0: I imagine that the Internet has made big strides, though, as it relates to rare diseases. You write about how rare diseases require more communication in order to coordinate research. Imagine a pre-Internet era trying to get that done.
1: Oh, I I can't even fathom what it was like before the Internet. I mean, amazingly, even within the Internet era, when I started to coordinate physicians and researchers conducting Castleman's research and get them together, I learned that none of them had ever communicated before. And, and I just couldn't believe it. In this Internet era where it's so easy to get an email address and a phone number to figure out you know, how to connect with other people, even within this era, no one was working together. And unfortunately, there are very few incentives in medical research to get people to collaborate. Everyone focuses on their own, their own given projects. But, but if we really want to make progress, we need to all work together.
0: I mentioned Georgetown, where you were the quarterback. You then went and picked up a master's at Oxford, graduated from Penn's Med School. Something I didn't mention, though, is along the way, as if that's not enough, you got an MBA at Wharton, no less. But you did that, I think, so as to benefit the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. Explain that.
1: That's right. So as I was doing laboratory work and as I was organizing this Castleman's community, it became really clear that the greatest barriers to identifying treatments and cures weren't necessarily related to science or technology, but they were managerial issues. They were the fact that people weren't collaborating, the data weren't being shared, that resources weren't being used efficiently. These are business problems, things that um, that graduate master's programs can help you to, to do better. And so I felt like doing a master's in MBA at Warden would both give me the skills to try to to improve the way that our community worked together, but also give me time so that I could keep working in the lab to keep trying to identify a treatment that could save my life.
0: Your experience, Dr. feigenbaum is so unique, both being patient and doctor. I have to imagine that being a patient affected a, a patient while in med school and beyond affected how you consult, how you comport yourself as a physician. How do you think it's changed you as a practitioner?
1: Oh, it's changed me in so many ways. Um, I had my last rites read to me when I was 25 years old. I learned how precious life was. And as you, as you mentioned, I, I learned what it truly feels like to to be dying. Um, these are, are lessons that have completely changed the way that I, I live, the way that I practice, the way that I do work. But they're also lessons that I really want to share with the world so that other people can also um, live like they're in overtime. You know, you can make a mistake at the beginning of a game and make up for it. But when you're in overtime, like I'm in overtime, every second counts. And I really want to share this message that we're actually – we're all in overtime. We need to make the most of every second. And just as you said, these lessons have – or these experiences have profound effects on our lives.
0: How do you think your experience impacted med students who knew you and watched you go through this?
1: I had a number of classmates that they were devastated because we were close friends, but they also, for the first time, could begin to realize that the patients in front of them are not just a sick individual, but they're someone who was healthy, who had a family or has a family, has friends, has a whole network of people around them that we as physicians, we don't see when we go into the hospital room. We just see the patient. But for my friends and my classmates, it made them realize that there's so many more people connected to every patient that we take care of. And it seems like a simple concept, but actually it really takes living it and breathing it um, to make it feel real.
0: How about for someone who's hearing this and is afflicted with a rare disease but doesn't have the fortitude of the beast, doesn't have the, uh, you know, the medical skills, the, uh, the, the uh, ability to go to Wharton and, and establish what you've established, but they're looking for hope at the same time?
1: Fortunately, there are a number of incredible advocacy organizations that exist for these given rare diseases. There are incredible physicians and researchers working on these diseases. So you don't need to have a medical background. What you really need um, is to have a passion for and a realization that if you if you want treatments to be advanced, that you can actually be a part of it. Things like organizing a community, organizing a meeting. These are things that that you don't need all, all that training for, but things that But they won't happen if you don't do it. And I think that's the important thing to get across for rare disease patients is that we can't expect and hope that someone else will do it. If we want it to happen, we need to take that action.
0: I was struck by how much of this whole narrative revolves around the same hospital setting, a, a scene of such highs and lows.
1: That's exactly right. And and the the high at the end, which also occurred in in a hospital setting, was when a year ago when my wife and I had had our daughter, Amelia, Um, I I had dreamed about and thought about Amelia uh, or or the, the possibility of having a child. When I was first sick, when I, when I first had my last rites read to me and, and nearly died for the first time, I, I mourned that I would never be able to have a family. I wouldn't be able to get to make, to marry Caitlin, my, my now wife, be able to have a family with her. And t- for seven years later to, to be able to get married and then to have this incredible daughter, Amelia, um, which, again, in the same hospital that I had spent so much time suffering in, Um, just meant so much to me.
0: I have wept tears of joy only five times in my life when my mom joked that she looked like the Chiquita banana lady after her brain surgery, when I learned of my mom's clean MRI scan during a freshman seminar at Georgetown, when Caitlin said yes to my proposal, when I finally began to turn the tide against Castleman disease with the addition of IVIG, and when I first laid eyes on Amelia, the joy hasn't stopped either. Amelia has brought more happiness to us in her young life than we could have ever imagined. Here's hoping it continues to be a story with a happy ending, Doctor. I really appreciated this and think people will enjoy it. So thank you for coming on on the day of its release.
1: Thank you so much for having me. The
0: book is called Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. David Fagenbaum is the author of course, there's a link for you in my Twitter feed, as well as information posted at Smirconish.com about that. Hear more of Michael Smirkanish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live
1: weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect
0: with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays.